Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. Good morning. When I, was, uh, when I was here not so long ago, I've got to tell you, chapel was one of my favorite, it was my, one of the highlights of my week. I love chapel. I love the worship. I love just the chance to, uh, to kind of do church in, a, in, a, in an area where I think it's a little bit more, uh, more real, more authentic. People are more committed. There's something, there's something really exciting, I think, about chapel, at least there was for me. Uh, my name is Justin Sturgeon. I am the campus pastor at Eagle Christian Church's newest campus out in CUNA. I was leading New Beginnings Christian Church there before we, um, we relaunched as ECC CUNA. Um, just a bit about me. I've been married for 27 years now. I'm the father of six boys. You know one of them. Uh, so he's sitting up here in the front, Micah. Uh, so it's good to see him here. I spent, uh, spent four years in the Marine Corps, and then I worked in the, in the world, in the civilian sector, uh, for about 14 years before I, before I attended Bible college. And so it was a bit later in life that I came into ministry. Uh, it, was, uh, it was after some, uh, some experience, some family, some of those things. So different than, than a lot of you. There's a few non-traditional students here maybe that can relate to some of that. Uh, but if you, do, if you do the math, I graduated in 2016. So that was only five and a half years ago. Uh, it doesn't seem like more than, more than five days, really, sometimes when I step back onto campus. It looks the same. That's enough about me. What about you? Let's talk about you for just a second. It's my understanding, anyway, that since the first part of this year, you've been working through a series looking at the, the, sub, the, uh, the subversive nature of the kingdom of God. Right? And, and even more recently, you've been looking at then the, the adjustments to be subversive. In particular, uh, you've been looking at the adjustments that certain Bible characters made in their subversive work and in God's call to their life. Now, if you're like me, you're probably pretty familiar with the characters that you've talked about over the last five weeks. You know Noah and Abraham and, and, uh, and Moses and David and Ruth and some of those people that you've been talking about. You're pretty familiar with those stories. But today we're going to talk about someone named Amos, and you at least recognize the name, but if you're anything like me, Amos is a bit more unfamiliar than some of those other characters. Sure, you know, there's, there's that book that bears his name. You'd probably know if you think through it, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, right? You, you can probably find that in your Old Testament. You know that he, uh, that he was one of the, the minor prophets. You know a, a bit about him, but, but what else do you know? Now, I'll tell you, I, I like preaching. I enjoy preaching, but I love the research and the preparation to preach. I love digging into the context and finding out what was going on in the world at that time and, and who the audience is and, and who's speaking and all of that stuff has so much value for me as I study and as I prepare to preach. Learning context has opened the door to familiar passages over and over and over and over again. Passages that I've read my whole life, but I learned something new about the context, and all of a sudden a light bulb comes on, and there's something new and deep there. Well, you probably know most of the history of what we're going to be talking about, so I'm going to be brief here, but I do want to cover just a bit of that context, if you'll indulge me. You know about the united monarchy under Saul and David and Solomon. You know that David wanted to build that temple, but God told him No. So Solomon is the one that built the temple in Jerusalem. You know that Israel prospered under David and Solomon. 
But you know what? Solomon, for being one of the wisest guys that ever lived, made some really stupid decisions. He made some big mistakes. See, one of those, well, Solomon had a, well, he had a, he had a problem with the ladies, right? He, he had many wives, and many of his wives were foreign wives, and they led him into idolatry. They led him away from God. That was one of his problems, but he had another problem too, and that as he was expanding the kingdom of Israel, as he was working to do, uh, to do what he does as a king, well, he placed a heavy burden on the people in taxes and in labor. He put a heavy weight on the people. And so when he died, well, his son, Rehoboam, had an option to, to either continue in his father's footsteps or to change things and make things a little bit more pleasant for Israel. And, and you know that he chose wrong. And so Israel divides. And so the, the, the priestly or the, the kingly line, the royal line that God had established, well, it does continue through that son, Rehoboam. He has two of the tribes. In the southern kingdom, they have, the, they have Jerusalem, they have the temple. But Jeroboam, Jeroboam the first anyway, uh, Jeroboam takes the 10 northern tribes, they rebel and they become Israel. So as we talk about Judah, as we talk about Israel, and in particular as we talk about Israel today, recognize that primarily we're looking at that northern kingdom. Well, Jeroboam was the first in a long line of of kings of Israel who led people away from God. One of his first acts as king was to build competing, competing with Jerusalem, competing worship centers in the north. He built a a, a sanctuary in Bethel and a, a sanctuary in Dan, and he built golden calves there where the people could come and worship there instead of having to travel to Jerusalem. Now, idolatry has been a problem in Israel since the time they left Egypt and really even before then, and it continues to be a problem, continues to linger and grow under this divided kingdom. Now, Judah at least had times where a good king would come to power and there would be reform and he would lead the people back to God, but Israel never had that. All of Israel's kings were wicked. All of them did evil in the sight of God, and all of them led the people towards idolatry and towards foreign gods. That's a snapshot of the political and the, the religious climate in Israel when Amos is called into ministry. The people are, in fact, still very religious. They're, they're proud of Yahweh, their God. They, they recognize that Yahweh has done these things for, him, for them, but, but they also, well, they serve other gods too. They serve gods of rain and harvest and fertility. See, the people of Israel, they're divided. Well, in addition to understanding the religious and, and political climate, it is also important that we recognize the economic climate that's taking place there in Israel at this time. See, Solomon had brought great wealth and prosperity to Israel and, and prestige, and that continues long after his death. As Amos begins his ministry, well, Israel is at the height of their prosperity, at least some of Israel. What we find in the middle of the 8th century B.C. is a situation where the rich are getting rich and the poor are getting poorer. Middle class is disappearing entirely. And aren't you glad that that's just a thing of history and no longer the case in the world that we live in? As you can imagine, maybe even as you've experienced, the wealthy are increasing their wealth at the expense of the poor. And as we read Amos, it becomes clear that corruption and oppression and greed are the virtues of the day. And the poor, the widows, the foreigners, and other marginalized people are at the mercy of the wealthy. But the wealthy have no mercy. They exploit the poor. And so we come to Amos. 
And I'll confess that in preparing for this message, I didn't know much about him when I first was asked to preach on Amos. I knew what I told you before. He's, he's there, he's a minor prophet. There's a book named after him. I've read it before, but, but not with any intent. And so, uh, so I've dug into this pretty extensively. And I told you that's, that's part of the joy of what I do. But I want to share with you a few of those nuggets that I've mined. Let's start in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, to give you some context. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw, interestingly, he saw the words, among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw, concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So now you know what I know about Amos. The Bible tells us almost nothing. We know that he was a shepherd. Uh, We'll learn a little bit later in, in his book that he also, in addition to being a shepherd, well, he pruned some fig trees. That's what we know. Now, we can take some of those resources that your professors have taught you about, and you can go into the library, and you can pull out some of those resources, and you can find, okay, Tekoa, where is that? Well, it's about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, so it's in the kingdom of Judah. And you can look at some of those other resources and kind of try to pin down, okay, if Uzziah was king during this time, and Jeroboam II was king of Israel in this time, well, that somewhere in there, there's a, there's a window that we know that, Isaiah, or that, uh, that Amos was ministering under, and so that puts us somewhere in the 783 to, to, to 747 BC time frame. So we've got that much so far. If you were to do a little bit broader search through some of those resources, you'd discover that his contemporaries that were, that were prophesying in the same time were Isaiah and Micah and Hosea during the same time that Amos is ministering. So, so let me summarize Amos then in the context in which he wrote. He was a shepherd in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was sent to preach against the northern kingdom of Israel approximately a generation, so somewhere in 30 to 50 years, before Israel was conquered and taken into exile by Assyria never to be seen again. Did I mention he was a shepherd? I I don't know if you're aware, but shepherds aren't at the top of anyone's list of who's who. There's no high school guidance counselor that that directs the brightest in their classes to uh, a career in shepherding. It's hard, dirty work. For meager pay, no health insurance, no tuition assistance, no pension plan. If I can put that into our context, if, if we were going to attempt today to, to put this into our context, I might say something like Amos, who was among the Starbucks baristas in Garden City, or Amos, who was among the, well, the call center representatives, or Amos, who was among, well, you fill in the blank. What we know about Amos is that he was common, ordinary guy with the courage to travel to a hostile nation and proclaim the word of God. Now, I wish I had time to walk you through Amos' writings theme by theme and sermon by sermon and, and, uh, and, and poem by poem. There's so much in there. There's, there's beauty in this book, and I would love to, to, to do a series on this, but we don't have time for that today. So let me give you just the brief breakdown of Amos. It's composed of nine chapters. Chapters one and two are prophecies against the nations. They're predictions about what's God, what God's going to do to them and the judgment he's going to bring. Chapters 3 through 6 are sermons, and then chapters 7, 8, and 9 are some visions that Amos has that are given to him by God. So here's how you need to to, uh, kind of visualize the scene as Amos shows up. In in chapter 1 and 2, as we start this, Amos shows up in Israel at their worship center in Bethel, and he begins to prophesy God's coming judgment against eight nations. These prophecies, as as Amos starts to preach in Israel, these prophecies would have his people nodding their head, 
and agreeing with him and maybe even cheering, yeah, God, get them. You show them. Wipe them out, destroy them. They deserve it. And these, these predictions, these prophecies sound something like this. There's two patterns that you'll see. It starts this way. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he goes on to say the same about Gaza and the same about Tyre. These are the outer circles. So the first, the first pattern is the three transgressions and four, I will not revoke the punishment. But the second pattern is you're going to start to see geographically there's a pattern that's being laid out here. So these are, these are the, the enemies, the outsiders, the foreigners to Israel, the oppressors. Well, he continues with three more cities. For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Same goes for Ammon and for Moab. And he, and he, lists, what God, he lists what God has against these nations. Now, these, this, this closer circle, well, these are, uh, these are cousins, distant cousins to Israel. They have some of the same ancestors, some of the same lineage. So he's drawing in closer. And what you'll find is in these first six, he actually, he actually brings his prediction against every nation that has a border that touches Israel. So all of the nations surrounding Israel are coming under God's judgment. And then the seventh nation, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The Israelites that are hearing this are still in agreement as, as they hear God's judgment against their, their southern neighbors. But Amos has laid a masterful trap. He's got the people agreeing with them. He's, he's got them cheering him on. And then he brings in the eighth nation for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not rebuke the punishment. Can you hear the silence? Can you feel the tension and the anger as that starts to bubble up? Well, what is Israel's transgression? What does he have against them? Let me tell you. Amos chapter 2, verse 6, we read this. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And he goes on. There's actually more, quite a bit more because as you continue, as you, as you read God's judgment against Israel, what you're going to find is that although he talked about these other seven preceding nations, well, his judgment against Israel makes up about a third of those first two chapters. His judgment against Israel is much more significant. He has a lot more to say to Israel than he does to the nations around them. Well, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 are Amos' sermons, and, and you read them, you'll see themes concerning judgment and impending destruction and imminent exile but you'll also see references to a remnant, to a portion who will remain after that judgment. In chapter 4, God recounts the warnings that he sent to Israel. And after each example, God repeats a tragic phrase. Yet, you did not return to me. God says, I brought famine to wake you up. And yet, you did not return to me. I brought drought. And yet, you did not return brought disease and pestilence and warfare, and yet you did not return. Well, in chapter 5, Amos recounts God's lamentation over Israel. Lamentation is a mournful song of loss and of grief. 
interspersed throughout this lamentation, God's, God's grief over Israel, again, you'll see a pattern. The Lord implores Israel to seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil. And there's so much more I wish that we had time. As I read this book again and again this week, I was struck by the beauty and the depth of Amos's writings. As I continued to reread it, those patterns and themes continued to emerge. The wealthy have oppressed the marginalized. The wealthy are engaging in, engaging in gluttony and sexual immorality. They lie and cheat and steal. They devoutly observe their religious practices, expecting that Yahweh, because of their devotion to him, will, will look the other way. But then they hedge their bets by worshiping other gods, gods of rain and fertility and, and harvest. It's as if their personal lives, it's as if they believe that their personal lives and their religious lives are to be kept separate. I can worship in the temple on the Sabbath, and then I can go back to my normal life on the first day of the week. Well, judgment is coming, and it will be severe. And in the last three chapters, 7, 8, and 9, Amos recounts a series of visions, but there's an interesting pause following the third vision. It actually turns into, rather than a, a vision, it turns into a narrative section, and this is where we find our text for today. So I'm going to pick up in chapter 7, verse 10, to give you uh, some, some context for, these, uh, for our, our verses for today. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words, for thus Amos has said. So he's telling Jeroboam, this is what Amos has said. Jeroboam shall surely die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And so then Amaziah says to Amos, he says, O seer, go flee to the land of Judah. Go home. He says, and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for this is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Here's Amos' response. Here's, here's, our, here's our text for today. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. I'm not a preacher. I don't, I don't know anything. I'm just a guy. But God sent me here. Amos continues, Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And then he goes on, to bring the indictment against Israel and against Amaziah and, and uh, Jeroboam II at the same time. There's more. There's so much more that we don't have time. Nine chapters worth. But I believe that it's critical, as we consider our text for today, it's critical that we recognize the context of what Amos was dealing with when he left his former life, when he, when he left his flocks, when he adjusted to live out God's calling in his life. Amos preached to a wealthy, self-indulgent people who denied themselves nothing their hearts desired. They pursued luxury. They were sexually immoral. They were promiscuous. They took advantage of the poor. They worshiped Yahweh in their temple, but they worshiped other gods. Does that sound familiar at all? The prophecies, the sermons, the visions of Amos still speak to us today. I have a couple observations that I would like to share with you as we wrap up. It's important that we take these principles. You know this. It's important that we take the principles of what we read in Scripture and find how they apply to our lives today. We take them to our town. 
So, so the first is just simply this. It seems that the culture we live in has a lot in common with Israel during the time of Amos. Did you notice that? Celebration of wealth and pleasure and luxury of Israel describes Western culture in the 21st century. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. We've rejected God in favor of money and power and sex and fame. As you look around, you can see that our culture, well, we revel in debauchery. If we give any thought of God to all, we delude ourselves into thinking that our lack of opposition indicates God's blessing. And the fact is, is that the church has a tendency to follow along with that slide of the world. We stay a step above, right? We're a step closer, a step more moral than the world around us. We maintain that. We worship passionately on Sunday and underpay our employees on Monday. We accumulate cars and designer clothes, homes, but we turn a blind eye to the refugees and to the poor. God's indictment of the religious practices of that day was severe, and I wonder if God feels the same angst today, if he feels the same uh, betrayal from his people. Amos 5.21, we read this. These are God's words to Israel, and I wonder how they apply it to our world today. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The second observation is this. I believe that God sent a Judean shepherd to speak truth to power because the ones who should have been speaking truth were silent. Chapter 2, verse 11, we read this. God again is speaking. I, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Where are the prophets of today calling the people of God to care for the poor and the marginalized and the foreigner? Those who do have the power, to, the courage to speak on, on behalf of those people receive the same command from those in power. Be silent. Be quiet. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Go home. People that have the courage are accused of being liberal or political or, or of preaching a social gospel. But if Amos teaches us anything, it certainly includes the fact that God is concerned about justice. Historically, the church has sometimes found herself on the wrong side of an issue. Where was the majority of the church when slavery was widespread? Where was the church during the civil rights movement? Where is the church on issues of social and racial justice today? Where is the church in the conversations about our climate? Where are the preachers who will speak out on questions of injustice? See, the fact is, is the slide towards complacency is slow and insidious. We usually don't notice when it happens. Like the Israelites, generation after generation saw normal. It was normal for them. 
And most of them never stopped to consider. Most of them never looked at, at their scriptures to say, what does God want from us? They just saw this as normal. This is what we do. Most of us never pause to question whether normal is good. The fact is that preachers and leaders of my generation and the generation before me, with the best of intentions, well, we have blind spots. We sometimes don't see the injustice. There are things that cloud our vision. Well, if God can use a Judean shepherd, he can use a barista, a mechanic, a housewife. He can use a college student. Speak truth to power when no one else will. The church, you know, you've been hearing, the church is called to be subversive. Be subversive in our culture. But let me challenge you from the life of Amos. Sometimes prophets are called to be subversive in the church. When the church is complacent, when the church looks like the culture, when the church is not faithfully fulfilling her duties, God will send an Amos to call the church to repentance. If you take up the mantle of Amos, let me issue a word of caution. Amos never came with his own message. He never came with his own opinions about what should be, what should be the, the case of things in Israel, how things should work. He didn't come to preach his opinions or his preferences. Amos heard clearly from God and spoke the words that God called him to speak. So I'll ask you, where is God calling you to speak into your culture today? Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church, where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.